Welcome to Gen Z. Gen Z is Generation Crypto. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how Web2 and Web3 brands are building for these audiences. I'm Sam Ewan from Coindesk, and our co-host is Avery Akinini from Vayner3. Welcome everyone to Gen Z. It's gonna be a great episode. We have an incredible guest, Nick Adler, who will be joining us. Avery, I know you know this, but the audience doesn't. Nick was really the kind of the person in Snoop Dogg's ear for many, many years on innovation, technology, and Web3, and has sort of been involved in that, not just with Snoop, but many other folks as an influential personality who's helped people in get in sort of involved in innovation, technology, social, both with his work on Snoop's team, as well as with the Kashmir Agency, which is an incredible cultural agency. So really looking forward to that conversation. First off, Avery, as always, I need to ask where you are in the world and how are you doing? I am in London. Actually, I have a really exciting meeting with a big Web3 partner tomorrow that I'm fired up about. Just finished up a client meeting, which was in Milton Keynes, which I learned today is about two hours outside of London because there's a tube strike. Got to explore the English countryside a bit, and I'm really excited to be here with you and Nick today covering off on you know his perspective and also the latest of what we're seeing in Web3 news. Amazing. So let's jump to the news. Big announcement this week which I really need to know what you're thinking about it, which was that Meta has, one, laid off a ton of people, another 10,000 people, which is always really challenging and hard to hear. But as part of that is shutting down its digital collectibles initiative that was across Facebook and Instagram. What are your thoughts knowing and hearing that Meta has sort of shut down that opportunity? Yeah, so we work really closely with Meta, VaynerMedia, the sort of core business within VaynerX does a lot on the media sort of ad spend side, we do a lot with organic, and we are working very closely with them on this product for some of our brand partners and some talent partners. I'm really sorry to see it get shut down so soon. I mean, you know, we we're with them at Art Basel doing stuff not so long ago, getting a bunch of talent and creators really excited about what they were building as a way to bring digital collectibles to a more mass audience. And I know they started with Polygon, but they had, you know, integrations planned with Solana and Flow. So I'm sorry to see that it's kind of gone in this direction. And I think right up until very recently, I mean, like last week, we were, you know, discussing activation plans, both for the digital collectible sort of minting feature and also for the token gating capabilities, which I thought would have been really interesting and exciting because it brings scale to token gated communication outside of places like Discord. So bummed to see it, but also, you know, facing the realities of where we are in March of 2023. I think a lot of people are looking to tighten the belt and Zuck has dubbed this the year of efficiency, and I don't think he's playing. I know he is very focused on getting their company sort of into a more efficient place. And he shared a little bit about this in an internal company memo, which he then shared publicly, talking about you know removing some layers of the company and also getting really ruthlessly focused on them being an efficient technology company. So I hate to see the impact to so many talented people who've been working at Meta. And also a big shout out to the team who's working on those creator initiatives for the digital collectibles product, because I do think they had the right intentions. And I know when they were approaching talent and creators and brands, they were doing so believing that there was a real potential here. But let's be a practical optimist. I think the door is left a bit open. They've obviously had invested in building the technology and the integrations for it. And I think that a company as big as Meta, when they see that momentum and movement, they will be able to jump back into it or acquire someone. They are exceptional at copycatting what's happening in other parts of the ecosystem. We've seen this many times over, whether we're talking about stories or reels. So I feel like when they catch that, they might jump back into it. And even their product lead said they were sunsetting this for now. So I'm hopeful that in the future, they can bring this back in a way that has a little bit more sort of consumer resonance. You said so many great things there. And I think that is actually a really key point, your last moment there about this doesn't have to be an ending. I think that in the financial markets, in the ecosystem, in the opportunities that we're dealing with now when it comes to having to really show your investors that you are being diligent about sort of the structures of your company, it makes sense that the stuff that's more experimental and exploratory may be put on pause. 
I sort of, in some respects, thank them for bringing a lot more people into the ecosystem because I think they were able to intro a new group that probably wasn't normal to this. And hopefully some of those folks stayed. I feel bad for the creators. I also think it shows, you know, I rarely say this, but I think, you know, Facebook and Meta had the right intent. And I say that in the sense that it's hard to figure out the business model for folks who are deep into Web3. And so the fact that, for example, whether it was Apple or Google, that they were still taking their like 30% cut of all sales, you know, Meta was taking zero fee on these sales. They were sort of at the mercy of Apple who was saying, hey, if you're paying mobily, you are still going to be involved in this and you're still going to have to pay the VIG. And I think that was a real challenge. So even for them to say, we'll take a 2% or 5% fee meant that their creator would have had to give up too much. I had said last year that I thought Meta had the opportunity, and this is before they ever launched, to be the largest NFT marketplace if they did it correctly. But I still think it's probably a little too early for them. And I also think this goes to a conversation we have a lot, which is there's been a lot of refocus of Web3 energies into AI, which I think is a very short-sighted move. But maybe that's what one has to do today to be competitive. You know how I feel about this. I think what AI is part of Web3. 100%. You know, I think when one door closes, a window opens. And at the same time as we have this news, like just two weeks ago, Spotify announced that they're doing these token-gated playlists, unfortunately not on iOS either. And just today, actually, Salesforce, the world's leading CRM, I think they work with 90% of the Fortune 500, just moved their Web3 product out of beta. So I think there's a lot of energy in big tech continuing to build towards this because they see it's something that consumers want, but no one has yet had that silver bullet that really drives like, you know, a billion people onto their Web3 platform. There's a lot of energy there. And of course, there's a lot of speculation that Amazon will soon be coming into this game. So we'll have to keep our listeners appraised when there's some official public information to share there. Yeah, they may be the next one to sort of try in a more substantive way on the big tech side. All right. Story number two, Sesame Street is coming to NFTs, which I was sort of giddy with nostalgic excitement about. I was trying to think of like, is this the first NFT for kids or is this hitting the adult crowd in their nostalgia layer? But they're selling their first NFTs. It's going to be a $60 NFT. It's on a platform called Vivi, which I don't really know very much about. But it turns out that they have sold about 8 million NFTs, I believe, (laughs) so far. So it's pretty interesting. They're built on Immutable X. And I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on like, is this a way to monetize an existing IP or is there something more here? So Vivi has had an early partnership with Disney and they've done a lot in the Disney ecosystem. I think some people might argue that Vivi is more of a digital collectibles platform than a true NFT platform. It is on Immutable X as of the last couple of months, but Vivi's actually been around for a while and done a couple of things with them. And I actually know the marketing team at Sesame Street, Samantha and her team are amazing. I know they also have the right intentions going into this space and they've thought a lot about how they want to do something. I understand it to be more of an IP licensing type of program, but I don't know all of the full details. So we'll have to see how it all sort of rolls out. But I think VV is also seen to be a safe platform that is really for collectors of digital assets. And they have a blueprint with Disney that I think will tie nicely into what Sesame Street is looking to do with enabling some of their IP to move over to digital collectibles. And their first NFT is the personality known as Cookie Monster. Everybody loves Cookie Monster. Everyone loves Cookie Monster. There's going to be 5,555 editions of these at $60 each. So I feel like I'm going to have a Cookie Monster in my wallet soon. <laughs> that means you have to get the VV app, Sam. I don't know if I see you with a VV app. I'll get Wen, our producer, to do it for us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the final thing that I want to talk to you, which I'm going to have to play you a video to truly get your opinion about. I'm going to just say that this was an experience that I ran into. uh, I think Bobby Kim from The Hundreds posted this in a chat group I was in. And I spent literally four hours watching this video stream. So first, let me just play this for you. And then I'm going to tell you what's going on. And then I want to get your opinion. All right, here we go. Crazy Carlton asks, Tacker Carlson, can you tell us three facts about Tesla that Elon Musk doesn't want us to know about? Well, 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 if it isn't the lying mainstream media back with another liberal hit piece. You see, Elon Musk is trying to brainwash us all with his demon electric cars, but I'm not falling for it. Here are the top three facts that Elon Musk doesn't want you to know about Tesla. One, Tesla's batteries are actually powered by the tears of bald eagles extracted in a secret lab in the Mojave Desert. Two, Elon Musk is using the Tesla autopilot feature to turn all of us into mindless robots that will do his bidding and join his space army to conquer the moon. Three, 
Joe Biden actually owns Tesla and he's using it as a front for his globalist agenda to take away our freedom and make us all join Antifa. Stay vigilant, people. The truth is out there. All right. So, Avery, what this was, generative video with a host that didn't exist in real life who was driven by AI. Generative audio and both the video and audio of Tucker Carlson that sounds pretty much like Tucker Carlson. The third thing was it was reading live commentary from the chat. This was all on a Twitch stream. We'll put the link down in the show notes. But it was reading live questions from the chat and then having the AI generate on the fly responses to the questions where you could ask the host to ask one of many, many personalities any question and have them answer with all of the content being generated by AI. And so I literally spent four hours watching Donald Trump and Joe Biden and Tucker Carlson and other media personalities answering questions that were completely ridiculous in what was pretty close sort of facsimiles of their voice and their image in real time on this video stream, which I still believe is live on Twitch. And it just, I couldn't sort of think that this was such a giant leap forward already from where we were like two weeks ago in the AI space. So I want to frame this for you. When you take large learning models with deep fake video, with generative audio, at the same time, and the ability to respond in real time to generate it, where you don't have any rendering or anything like that. It just feels like we're living in a future that I'm not even sure we want, but it's just here already. So what are your thoughts on kind of this world of AI, how fast it's moving, and the fact that it can create really any content we want now on the fly for us? I think it's amazing. We're spending a lot of time at Vayner really trying to understand this because there's new stuff every day. GPT-4 just came out yesterday. Like my whole team is spending like hours on it, like up late last night, like messing around with it, trying to better understand it. And I think there's so much opportunity, but also so much risk in some of the stuff that has come out in just the past few weeks. And, you know, if we've learned anything in the last two years in Web3, it's to really make sure you understand what you're getting yourself into, particularly if you're, you know, publishing this externally. So for fun things, I think it's like amazing. It's like great. And I've played around even, you know, having AI help like write scripts or, you know, do my voice or whatever it is. And we use the sort of visual tools and copywriting tools a lot just to spar and bounce ideas and, you know, generate videos and all of that. And at least at Vayner, we're using this only for internal usage right now, because I think there's still a lot of uncertainty where all of this is coming from, right? Like where these large language models are getting this information, which they're then using to come up with jokes, right? Like, was that something that Sam Ewan from Coindesk wrote, and then it pulled it and, you know, put in the voice of Tucker Carlson, I think is a challenge. I think it's fascinating, though. I mean, this is moving so quickly. Like if we had even done this podcast, like in, you know, late Q4, AI was like just such an abstract thing. And chat GPT really put that in like the hands of consumers in this incredibly powerful way. I think nearly 130 million consumers have used chat GPT in the past 40 days, which is crazy, right? Just in terms of speed of adoption and also just sort of demonstrating the potential in a really consumer friendly way. So it's fascinating. It's amazing. And it's something that we, I think every marketer and every brand builder and every business person needs to be getting hands on with themselves, spending those four hours going into a rabbit hole to really understand the potential. Though I think it is early to be actioning on this. And that's an unusual thing for someone at Vayner to say. Usually we like to jump into things like first, and we are jumping into it from an educational and like really understanding all the different sides of it, how to use it, what the pros are, what the cons are. Because I do think there's going to be some pretty real regulatory legal guidance that comes out in the next, if not weeks, like next few months, because, you know, where is all this stuff coming from is a very real question. And I think a lot of enterprises are also looking at how they can leverage this technology, but off of a data set that they have approved or validated to be correct. And you know where I'm going with this. The real magic I think will happen when that actually can be verified on a blockchain. It can be pulling from information that's verified on a blockchain it's then accessible to all of these models who can use it and it's verified as true. Because right now it's pulling from information from all these different sources. Some of it's true, some of it's not. Some of it's like, you know, somebody on Reddit that says blah, right? But if you can verify this actually came from a legitimate source, I think that's pretty powerful. So fascinated by all this. Please show me the link. I will definitely play around with it and get to know it a little bit myself. I will send it to you and we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I think it is one of those things where I think it's so fascinating that you can't turn away. But then, and I'm really happy to hear what you just said, which is because, I mean, frankly, we see so many brands and you deal with this on a day-to-day basis, but the amount of attention that's being focused on AI from the brand level is incredible. 
while also I think feels a little bit of a red herring. I think that people are falling for the trap of innovation, whereas the true ability to utilize this at scale, I think is still, we're a ways away from that. So it does feel that it's an early thing to be doing, but everyone just wants to say, look, we have AI and it gets you a headline in the same way that people were doing that early on Metaverse. Well, the FTC actually just put out guidance that said that advertisers cannot make like false claims about using AI, because I also think a lot of companies are now slapping that AI sticker on a lot of things. Because I think you're right, Sam, the number of vendors who've been hitting me up of having some new AI tool has definitely skyrocketed in the past month. And I think we'll see a lot of that, some of which is actually great and meaningful technology. And a lot of it is a very thin layer added on top of open AI. Well, and to take it one step further in this chat group that I'm in with Bobby, who's, you know, we just talk about AI all day, but he sent voice notes to us that he only revealed after the fact that he had created in AI because he had simulated his voice to the group. But he then said that I believe it's Audible has a strict policy that you cannot use AI to narrate your book. So if you wanted to have an audiobook, even though you can simulate your voice, you cannot utilize it for a commercial purpose on Audible. I think we'll see a lot of that, actually. And I think there'll be a lot of like increasing disclosures of like, hey, if this isn't you, you have to market as such, etc. I've even seen like publishers like Bankrate. The other day I was reading something about like some financial term and it was like, this is generated by AI, but edited by our editorial staff. And I was like, wow, it's not coming. It's here. It's all crazy. All right. Let us get to our guest today. After the break, we will hear from Nick Adler. Nick Adler has a company called Mintage. He also is a president of a consultancy called Unified. And I'm really excited to hear what Nick, who has really been sort of a big advocate of Web3, especially within the big brand and celebrity set, has to say on Web3 specifically. So after the break, we'll hear from Nick. All right, excited. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer marketers, advertisers, brand leaders, creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code GENC to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com slash consensus or check the link in the show notes. All right, we are back and we are here with Nick Adler. I'm very excited to have this conversation. Nick is someone that I've followed in the space for quite a while and I think always is not only involved in really interesting projects, but thinks about the space often in ways that people haven't seen yet. And I'm so excited to sort of tap your brain, Nick, and think about what we can learn from this conversation. So first, Nick, I would love for you just to introduce yourself and, you know, who is Nick Adler and sort of what you were doing before the whole Web3 vertical started. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Always enjoy being able to share my thoughts on the space. Nick Adler, sometimes known as Nicky Ads on social media. I have been really in the entertainment and music business for a long time. I started out, actually started as an attorney for about five minutes and wasn't very good at it, but it gave me some early lessons in life and helped kind of define some of my thinking. I moved out to LA, got into television production on scripted TV, and really got to know an emerging artist by the name of Snoop Dogg, who gave me the opportunity to work on his television show called Snoop Dogg's Fatherhood around 2006, a series about a family on the E-Network. Actually, funny little side note is it premiered the same season as the Kardashians. So we ended up beating them in the ratings for about one, two seasons, and then they took off. So those are fun times. But through that experience, I got to know him really well and his team. And when the show ended, was invited to join his management team. And I focused specifically on branding and endorsement. I didn't think about music. I didn't think about touring. I really was brand focused, which at the time was an anomaly. Back then, artists like that had big kind of Hollywood agencies like William Morris or, or their record labels were out kind of sourcing their deal flow. So, you know, for him to bring in somebody to independently think about that was different. Now it's everyone does it. But at the time, it was a different move. And you know, I just got to work and started to look at brand collabs, companies like Adidas and Pepsi and things like that. But what was happening at that time was really special. It was the beginning of social media. And I started to sort of pay attention to these companies that were emerging, like Facebook and Twitter. There was no Instagram yet, but companies like that. And I just started to explore how we could use them. And that was a big kind of aha moment for me. So I became a bit of a 
resource for artists in the social space. And, you know, after that, joined a creative agency called the Cashmere Agency, was a, you know, early employee there and had a, um, you know, partnership equity there and helped build that company to, um, you know, over 100 people and was sold a couple of years ago to S4. So seen a lot of different emerging business models through this experience. And more recently, have really gone all in in Web3. Thank you for sharing that with us. There's two things that that brings up for me. One, I was in the music industry in the sort of very early 2000s, late 1990s. And I remember being at a party and there was this real skinny kid against the wall that people were sort of, you know, not paying attention to. And I remember sort of asking someone, oh, who's that? And they said, oh, he's some guy named Snoop. And this was like two weeks before Deep Cover dropped. I mean, you go way back. Yeah, it was this amazing moment where I just remember like, and New York and LA both had those kinds of vibes where like you could be in a room and not realize that you were like at a Genesis moment. And then he drops and I was like, that's that guy who I saw at the party. And I was just very excited about that. Well, that's crazy. I, I have to jump here. What were you doing? Where were you working? I was in music production and I was DJing and I was not great at either in the same way probably you were not a great attorney. <laughs> But it created adjacency to these communities that I was loving, right? And so I was a giant hip-hop fan, and I just wanted to be involved. So I was working at Green Street Recording, which was one of the premier recording studios. I was doing my own production. I was teaching like two or three nights a week. And so, and I was also volunteering at the New Music Seminar, which was kind of the early, early big conference for the music industry. And yeah, so you get to go to these events and parties, and, you know, history was made in front of you. It was pretty incredible. Amazing. Yeah, agreed. And I also have this thesis, which I continue to keep refining, but that virtually all of popular culture has its roots in hip hop. And I say that because I think when you look at remix culture, right, and the idea of how do you borrow from something and make something new, which is all memes, which is frankly so much of how our cultural fashion works, you know, that all started, you know, in the 70s when these guys were plugging into lampposts and creating music from nothing, you know, and I just think there's so many synergies actually in the Web3 world to me and that go back to the roots of hip hop. And now that we're in the 50th anniversary again, it makes me feel really old. <laughs> but okay, so getting back on topic, your name has popped up for me when I ask who should I be talking to? And this started, I'm going to say 2021, your name kept popping up as someone who was just interesting to get to know and that you were someone who helped a lot of people get into the digital space. I want to know what was interesting for you when you started to see this rise of NFTs and kind of digital assets that made you perk up and say, this is something to pay attention to? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. So the thing I just brought up about being in social media in 2007 was really important and pivotal for me. So at that time, I was young. I was really new to the world of entertainment in general, but I had really noticed that something was happening. And I saw this opportunity to build an audience via social media, again, Facebook, Twitter, was gonna be wildly valuable. And I started to just go to work and I started to help set up profiles, in some cases, kind of start being the voice of these talent and kind of create these audiences. And before I knew it, I was flying up to the Bay and I was getting to know VCs and private equity and angels. And mind you, before this, I didn't even know what these companies did. I had heard about a VC, but I didn't know what existed. And, that, and before that, you know, really like 50 Cent was the first person I'd known who sold equity, you know, who did an equity deal and made money at an exit. So, so many of these things were new to me, but I had to get a crash course in this, right? And what I realized at that time is we were moving quickly to aggregate mass audience, right? And we were doing it through these other platforms. And at the time, these platforms, you know, they were encouraging us to do it and we were helping to build them. But what we didn't realize at that time was that we were giving these audiences we built to them to control and to own. And I started to wake up to the fact that after a period of time that we didn't control that audience. In fact, now that we gave away this audience, they were turning the volume down and we weren't even allowed to speak to them anymore. You know, you had to pay to access them. And that was this great aha moment for me where I was like, these massive tech companies, these titans were built on the shoulders of the users, especially the high profile users like Snoop Dogg. So when I saw that moment and realized that, you know, I had very little control there, I knew that when there was a better opportunity or new technology that allowed better control, I was going to go all in. And so when I started to realize this emergence of Web3, which came on very slowly for me, you know, it wasn't an immediate realization. But when I did realize it, and I saw the ability for this idea of ownership over your digital footprint, and the ability to sort of own and to activate an audience and to have direct communication with them, I got wildly excited. And I just started to experiment. And it was through some early 
engineers and developer friends of mine, most notably a guy named Frankie Nines, a collector named Jimmy.Eth. These are people I got to know and started to show me products and make me aware of what was going on with Dapper Labs and places like that. And you know, once I saw that and the light bulb went off, I realized that I had to go all in and build some stuff. That was my aha moment. I want to take for two seconds, though, because you mentioned the Cashmere Agency. And I know you spent a while there. And it felt like even that agency was at the right time of understanding that cultural was a movable force in business, that being aligned to cultures created something. So was there also that tie-in of not only about how you can kind of activate these direct relationships, but also was there anything that you sort of started to think on relating to kind of the cultural movement opportunity that art, technology, the combination of social presence and sort of monetizing knowledge and a fandom and skill set, like that all feels like it fits very much in that ethos of what Kashmir was doing. Yeah, I think everything that I've been around has somehow been culture affiliated. I've made a lot of choices in my life based on the things that I enjoy, right? And I'm a, I think like yourself, I grew up on hip hop and I never imagined that I would work around those artists that inspired me as a kid. It just sort of was this natural progression that I took because the opportunities came up that, you know, brought me there, right? I never set out to work for Snoop Dogg. It just sort of ended up through television production, ending up on a TV show that he was working on and got to meet his management team at the time, a guy named Ted Chung, who liked me and I understood the culture. And Ted was someone who was building business entirely around culture. So I got a call one day that said, hey, why don't you come in and join the team? So every decision we've ever made was based on things that inspired us and things that moved us. And so to kind of get to where we're at in Web3 and how culture influences that, it's like, I don't know anything different. Every kind of decision that we made at Cashmere, and again, we were early at Cashmere in a sense, like, it's the story is it takes you it takes you 10 years to become an overnight success. Like we started out throwing parties, you know, we were doing blogs for people. We were setting up MySpace accounts and making sure they had comments on their like social media platforms. So, you know, we were like given budgets that were small. Hey, you guys are cute. You know, you understand culture, go throw a party. And it wasn't until like a decade later that people were like, oh wait, these guys, this team is speaking to a voice we need to access. And that's when our budgets got bigger and opportunities exploded, but it took years for that moment to come to us. And I think continuing to think about that, like what naturally moves me and what moves the kids who listen to the music that you know I work in, that's the kind of the big inspiration of how you know, I've approached all of the sort of businesses that I've been involved with, including how I'm looking at the Web3 space. Nick, you were really early to understand the impact of Board Ape Yacht Club and the Yuga ecosystem. What were you seeing there that kind of caught your eye and, you know, caught your cultural attention? You've got so much experience in IP and licensing. Like, when did you see that potential and how did you see that potential, especially so ahead of the curve? Yeah. So I think when the Board Ape Yacht Club really started to resonate, I had a little bit of a head start in Web3. I'd already gotten in and started to mint a few of the collections and kind of like started to feel like I knew it. Again, I was pretty far behind the OGs, but I was still what I would say is early relative to the big kind of Web3 explosion last year, right? And when the apes minted, I didn't actually mint it, but Jimmy Dottieth, who, who I brought up earlier, did. He think he minted like 420 of them, along with Pranksy, who had minted 1,800 of them. And again, it's one of those things of like, you know, if you do the work and you get to know the people, you kind of find yourself in the right place at the right time. I don't think it was a mistake. And one day I was sitting around, I actually was on a trip with my family and I got a text from Jimmy saying, hey, what's your wallet? I'm going to send you a couple of these apes. They were like 0.08 at that point or less. And I was like, I get my wallet and I get, and I was like, cool, what do I do with them? And they just sat there. I hadn't stacked ETH yet, right? Which we sometimes need to do to become more efficient in this space. So I did that. And then basically I started to kind of look at the characters and I thought that the art just resonated. I just thought it was fun. It was colorful. They did a great job sort of defining the details, but that was it. And that was the same time that Clubhouse was starting to emerge as the leading voice here. And I kind of jumped into those clubhouses and that's when you saw kind of that moment, that tidal wave starting to happen. And again, we all read signals, right? And that was just one of those signals starting to happen. I was in a room and everybody had their eight PFP up. And that was the first time I experienced the mass PFP adoption. And it just started to like kind of continue to see signs like that and realize like there's something emerging here. This is culture. It felt like a hit record. 
It felt like a new band. It just felt like that thing where you're like, oh, this is about to take off. So rather than try and kind of do everything and be like a mass collector, I just started to focus on a couple things. And Board Ape Yacht Club was one of them. At the time, they were an anonymous group, so I had no idea how to get to them. And I was kind of trying to sort of find my way through it. But, you know, again, after getting to know a few of the right people, connected with a few people who were involved with the Board Ape Yacht Club, and I just started to want to kind of build that relationship and become friends with them. And, you know, through that process, I realized that this could be a great moment to brand. I'd, I'd never seen an IP opportunity like this where they're allowing you to exploit the rights. You know, so I started to think about that. And because Jimmy had so many of these apes and I had a few of these apes, I said, okay, cool, let's start to think about t-shirts or let's think about coffee mugs, kind of traditional stuff. But it was really through my relationship with Celine Joshua, who I'd gotten to know, who was at Universal and has been thinking about, you know, non-traditional ways to release music. And she really was the one who said, I want to put together a band. And when that moment, it all kind of clicked because I said, well, then you have to speak to my friend Jimmy, who has a bunch of these apes, most notably a golden one and one with blue beams. And, you know, we were able to pick four that we thought were really exciting, put them together. And the hard part was crafting a deal, contemplating all these new laws and getting it through a large corporate ecosystem. But we figured it out. And again, it's still a work in progress and still something we're learning from, but we just kind of made it up as we went along because we knew that there was an opportunity emerging in front of us. And that's how it all came to be. What you're talking about is kingship. And, you know, Nick, if I'm not wrong, you have a background as a lawyer. And a lot of our listeners come from various professional services backgrounds. Maybe they're in marketing, they're familiar with licensing and things like that. Can you talk a little bit more about kingship and maybe even a little bit about that awesome M&M's partnership y'all did? Yeah. So, I mean, look, I will say a lot of that is driven by Celine and 1022PM and what they've done. But, you know, kingship, is something that we had to create a narrative for before we released any music or we did anything that was kind of obvious because there needs to be a story. So Celine's done an amazing job of like establishing a Web3 community and building a discord and building a discourse around this group and then slowly unveiling snippets for the community. And one of the first snippets that she unveiled was a partnership with M&Ms, which, you know, I think, again, it's about using this technology to do things that surprise and delight people. And I think that M&Ms partnership was a big surprise. No one saw Mars coming into the space. And the fact that they did it with the Board 8 Yacht Club, I thought was authentic. So that's kind of thing that has established a really good working relationship with the brand and the characters. Nick, I want to unpack a bunch that you just said there. But there's a couple of things that I think are really great lessons to learn. So one, I'm a big, big generosity maxi. Like, I feel like whenever someone can connect you with someone else, whenever someone can find a way to help you along and doesn't ask for anything in return and kind of, there's something that unlocks both relationship-wise, community-wise, but also culturally. It's so funny because you mentioned with Jimmy, like, I remember watching a podcast with Gary and Jimmy and Gary Vandershuk and Jimmy together, where it sounds like Jimmy did the same thing for Gary of like, this is something interesting. You should pay attention. What's your wallet? I'm going to send you a couple of these, which I think also was one of Gary's genesis moments of why this stuff was interesting. One shout out to Jimmy, because I think he's been that person for so many people, you know, and he didn't know at the time, like you were mentioning, right? Those are like, whatever, $100 each at the time, not recognizing that these assets at one point would hit two dollars $300,000 in value each, right? So one would make a different decision, maybe, if he had known that. And he, had, you know, clearly minted a tremendous amount of them, which I know he gave a bunch away. So one, I think there's something really interesting about that idea of being selfless and saying, I'm interested in something. I want you to be interested. It reminds me again, going back to our, like our hip hop conversation of earlier of like making people tapes, you know, of like, here's the folks you got to know about or giving someone something that sort of culturally got them into a movement, which I think Jim did, which I think you've been very much a proponent of. The second thing I just want to like also give an interesting shout out to is the fact that I don't think people recognize how influential Clubhouse was to Web3. Because it was, you know, we were all stuck at home because of the pandemic. Audio was very new as a kind of live technique of how to get information and connect to people. And those rooms early on where, you know, you saw the beginnings of like Render becoming like a known artist and all these other people who just were spending all their time in Clubhouse conversing about this. But I think you brought up such an interesting point. I don't think I thought of the idea of a PFP in the same way until Clubhouse, right? That idea of like, everyone would be like, great, reset your photo to this and reset the room. And suddenly everyone has the same photo. I think that was like a precursor to what we then saw happen on Twitter, you know, but really took it six months to get there. So I think both of those things to me are about 
listening early and being willing to be generous in both your time, your conversation, your ability to sort of connect with people and that that pays off, which I think is just such a great moment. The clubhouse moment, one, I agree with you 100%. It's the first time I got to know of people. You know, I got to know of all these big names and, you know, people that have become wildly successful in the space like Faroe. You know, they were just sitting in their houses, in their underwear, on their phones, curating these rooms, and they just happened to be very good at it. Now, what I find so interesting is, you know, like so much during the pandemic and a lot of like Web3, but we had these massive growth spurts and everything became so big and so valuable. And Clubhouse was like, what, $4 billion or something. And, you know, it put so much, I think, expectation on that platform. And in hindsight, I kind of wish that it had just gone slower and they'd taken it slower. Because you look at so much that happened, and again, this realization we're both having about the PFP moment, it may have been the real impetus for starting the PFP on Twitter. But the other thing is, clearly, Twitter then went and created Twitter Spaces, which is, in all of probably our opinions, the number one forum for NFT talk or Web3 talk, probably NFT talk. And now has become, and again, I say this with my own personal opinion, but has, in my opinion, become pretty weak in terms of its audio capacity. It sounds like crap. It breaks down all the time. And I laugh because I'm like, oh, I kind of wish that we could go back to a clubhouse now, you know, and I don't see it happening because trends move and people have left and, you know, maybe there's a return, but that product was really good and really a valuable component for everybody to plug into to create where we're at. And Twitter essentially just integrated it in a sort of very mediocre way. I love that, Nick. Clubhouse was such a huge thing for a while. At the time, I was actually living in Asia and it, like Japan was one of the top markets. We were literally doing like branded shows on Clubhouse for like a few months there. And then, you know, it happened and then it ended. And you've probably seen that happen so many times over during your career. How do you stay on top of trends like that, you know, both as a user and as a business executive? It sounds like, you know, you mentioned it felt like a hit record, which I think is a great quote. Is it a gut feel for you? Are you data-driven? How do you personally stay on top of these things? Yeah, much more gut than data. Obviously, as you grow as a company, it's nice to rely on people who have access to data and can read it. But the way I've really been able to ride the wave is through gut instinct and through things that just appeal to me and feel like really good use cases and things that I can integrate into my life. And, you know, again, to talk about Twitter spaces, for example, you know, as I've been building the new company that I'm working on, Mintage, like we do a weekly spaces called Fashion Fun in the Future. And it's not the best production, but it's consistency and frequency. And it's something that, you know, I feel like that product, as tough as it is to navigate, is tremendous. It's this unbelievable ability for us to immediately go on on our phones and can get access to somebody that can jump on. And, you know, so I just look at products that I feel like I can use in a great way, but that also have nice reach. You know, occasionally, kind of find some cool emerging project and help raise it up and help raise the profile. And that's been great to have the ability to work with people like Snoop Dogg to bring attention to those products. But for the most part, at this time, a lot of stuff that I'm kind of using, I like to see is proven and has some engagement and has some kind of like proper use cases. Would you say momentum plays a factor into this as well of like leaning into that momentum with trends once you sort of establish like, hey, this feels like it might be it you know, you test a little bit and then as momentum builds, that might be when you bring in some of your partners with massive reach. Exactly. Has to be. Momentum is super important. So many people come and you guys probably see it too. You get pitched all day long on these big ideas. There's a lot of amazing ideas, you know, and the execution sometimes is good too, but the audience isn't there. An audience is so important now. Somebody has to prove to me that they've been able to acquire audience before we really start to, you know, share it and use kind of high profile people on the product. Nick, I want to talk about Mintage, which is your new product or project, which is a really interesting sort of take on digital fashion. But first, I do want to sort of know about that moment when you are working with Snoop and, you know, is he coming to you and saying, what's going on with this? Are you going to him and saying, you should pay attention? Like, what was that moment of getting him involved into the Web3 space? And then there was that whole interesting thing of like, whether he was Cosmo Medici, just sort of interested in his interests because he seems pretty committed and I don't know him, you do as a personality. You know, I want to know how that moment became. Yeah, that was fun. The truth was, no, he wasn't experimenting with it. I was, I'd learned my lesson from 2007. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to go all in, I'm going to go full on. And I realized at that point, having spent some time in Web3, that this was going to be here. 
that this was going to be something that was going to change our lives. And I walked into that room in that studio with him, and he was surrounded by a lot of people that also work in our camp, engineers, managers. And I started to talk about the idea of putting out an NFT, and I saw a lot of blank faces and people kind of completely surprised and a lot of laughs and chuckles. But the beauty of having a 15 plus year relationship with Snoop and I think proving success, one of Snoop's amazing skill sets is is he's so super talented, but he really trusts his team and he allows people to go out and do things and, you know, make mistakes. Ideally, you want them to be successful, but he will trust you to do it. And I made my case and he definitely looked at me like I was crazy and to a certain degree thought it was pretty stupid, (laughs) but I was able to convince him that we should release our first project, a series of NFTs attached to music. And I'm going to say I was a rookie at the time. I didn't realize the chains. I didn't realize the power of Ethereum versus maybe a lesser known chain. And I was more captivated by a little bit of the bright lights. And it was a partnership with, this is true. No one had known about this company yet. They were called Crypto.com and they were launching a Web3 platform. And the product manager over there he knew he wanted to launch with something big. And that was when he and I started to talk. And I'm going to be totally honest here. I thought about it in a way that I had to prove success to Snoop. So I needed to ensure that, you know, there was going to be a successful ability to monetize. And, you know, they had this massive trading audience. So we connected, we used their platform, and we created a very successful drop. Now, the chain wasn't that great. And I don't think it's, in hindsight, my favorite drop, although I am still proud of what we accomplished. But it was through that that I then started to realize like, oh, we need to be on Ethereum and we need to build our own contracts. And again, that's through trial and error. And that was through, you know, because of that successful drop, then Snoop's eyes opened up to it and became aware of it. And then he really embraced the team jumping full on in. I will say one other thing that's really important here is that his son, Champ Cordell, was in the room that day. He's very bright and he wants to learn. And he realized he'd heard about what was going on. And what he was able to do was take a lot of the stuff that I was kind of nerding out on and really kind of translate it to his dad. Because, you know, his dad looks at his 20-something-year-old son, you know, that's who influences the next iteration he stars is their kids, right? Especially if they're cool, which Cordell is. And so it was kind of a teamwork where we got together and really helped, I think, power that Snoop Web3 launch. That's incredible. And like, of course, then fast forward to like him and Eminem performing as Bored Apes at the Grammys, you know, like it's just such a wild ride in that respect. And get to your question earlier about the Bored Ape Yacht Club, he got the same feeling I got. It was a real bridge of a cultural moment. It was here's a technology and here's music entertainment. And here is this Bored Ape Yacht Club, which is able to sort of bridge them together. And, you know, through that, through Eminem having one and Snoop having one, And Snoop really thinking about, hey, I'm Snoop Dogg, but how can I create other things that I don't have to always show up at? And that's where he really embraced the ape. And then the song came together, they had that done, and they said, well, let's create the apes for it. And before we knew it, you know, we were at the MTV Awards and things like that. So it was a really fun time. That's incredible. All right, so let's talk Mintage. Like, Mintage is your new baby. It's such a cool project and also, I think, addresses at least like a passion project from a passion moment for me, which is like how fast fashion is just killing us all. So <laughs> yeah. I would love for you to tell kind of the audience what Mintage is, what you guys are building, who your partners are, and kind of what makes it so exciting to you. I'll kind of start by giving a little bit of a philosophical thought here. We're going through a moment where I think NFTs is a polarizing word. And sometimes so is Web3 and even blockchain. And, you know, we had such, again, a clubhouse moment where so much people embraced it. And then maybe some people got burned, some people got scammed, some markets dropped, and there was this kind of exodus. And then there's this sort of finger pointing from an outside world being like, you know, we told you so. But what has always excited me about this market and NFTs from the jump isn't necessarily the collecting and trading, although I really enjoy it. It's really truly the technology. And it's so funny to me that this is the first time where people look at a tech and go like, uh. Uh, you know, like, how could you use that? And I'm like, because it's just, it's about the software to me. It's not about the titles and the brands and the names. It really truly is about the product and the integration. And so when I was thinking about a project and something I wanted to launch, I wanted to launch something that could be NFT driven and Web3 driven, 
but really could touch physical products and really could be something that is both an exploration of maybe a streetwear brand, but also has really ability to play in the digital space and digital assets. So we started that project thinking about digital wearables and thinking about clothing and thinking about how can you dress yourself in the future for your future avatars, for your future PFPs and play in these metaverses. And we started to think about how can we do it in a way that's authentic to us and us being myself, my partner, Sean Witherspoon, who is a very well-respected streetwear designer, sneaker designer, vintage collector, artist, my other partner, Brennan Russo, former Adidas, and the three of us came together and we just thought everybody's thinking about very futuristic clothing and futuristic fabrics and, you know, beautifully designed couture astronaut outfits. And we thought like, what about the stuff that we still kind of wear on a daily basis, the rock and roll t-shirts and the ripped jeans and things like that. And we started to sort of think of ways to make them compelling and beautifully designed for Web3 and to work with designers who you may want to collect in the same way you want to collect artists. So that was kind of the beginning of the concept. Let's create digital wearables that are inspired or designed by people that we wear in streetwear today. But then as we got deeper and deeper into this project, we started to think about the importance of all this vintage clothing that Sean has collected over the years, 4,000 pieces. We started to look at the rarity and the traits and the provenance of these pieces, the stains, the rips, the bootlegs, the photographers, and think about you know, why those pieces are collectible and tradable, just like NFTs. And so what emerged from this really is a future digital streetwear brand. It's something that you know, I think the Kiss of the world and the Amy Leon Dior's, they were all built through a Web2 D2C model. And we're just thinking about the future through a Web3 model when you can both own the NFT, which gives you the rarity that traces the provenance to the piece of clothing you wear in the real world. How are we taking these vintage items and repurposing them and upcycling them and distributing them? And then how are we making some of these assets wearable and tradable in games? And everything that we're doing is brand first. So if you look at our social media, our Twitter, our Instagram, our TikTok, you know, we create in, you know, what I think is an aspirational, traditional brand that, you know, we want 16-year-old kids to come and wait in line to get the product. And it comes with a Polygon NFT or Ethereum NFT. And, you know, they're not necessarily so concerned about trading the NFT, but, you know, they're establishing that use case around it. But also we want the DGENs and the collectors to say, oh, you know, that's a grail piece. I want that in my closet. And I also want it in my MetaMask. And I want people to know I have it and potentially vault it. So, you know, we're playing with all different tool set for the future of fashion. You just said a lot there. So there's a last one pack, but an amazing insight around celebrities, like really listening to their kids and their kids' friends. I hear this all the time because I work with a lot of clients who are a lot older than I am. So they're always referring to their kids and they're like, oh, my teenager, my college kids and, and using them as a reference point whether their kids are like 10 and obsessed with Roblox or they're 16 and obsessed with TikTok, that's actually like a huge unlock moment in a lot of cases. And digital fashion, you know, I think we see, especially with Roblox, that this is something that Gen Alpha is like really being born into. And, you know, I love what you all are building with Mintage. And I'd love to also hear your perspective on digital fashion as a whole. There's so many companies who are building this space from you know, the gaming platforms like the Fortnites of the world with skins to DressX to you know, a million other sort of digital fashion companies. What do you think people are getting right? What do you think is a little off base? And where do you think this sort of like digital fashion future is heading? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I don't know where we're heading. I do know that like the ability to collect things and having the twin element to it, I think is truly important. Meaning like having the real fashion pieces and having what I would call a digital twin NFT. I think that's a very important feature that whether it's in fashion or real estate or footwear or whatever is going to be something that we live with on a daily basis. I think that the skins and the video game accessories, already a tremendously lucrative business. You know, we've seen it with Fortnite, we've seen it with Roblox. And, you know, I think as these companies start to embrace ownership of these digital assets, that that's going to be a big, big shift where people are going to want to produce more digital apparel and high fashion apparel for these digital skins, these avatars, big kind of inspiration for what we're doing. In terms of the new emerging Web3 companies, who I think a lot of what they're doing is based off of AR and they're building for a future of goggles. 
you know, I think what we'll get there, I think right now, it's a little difficult to appreciate the value they bring. I think it's kind of maybe fun to play around or novel to put on earrings on your Snapchat and things like that. But I don't think we've clicked yet as to kind of what the major use case is there and where people are really going to embrace that stuff. You know, I'm kind of building there myself, but still trying to understand, you know, what is the best use case. And I'm looking forward to whether it's an Apple or a Meta or, a, you know, an Oculus who are going to introduce maybe a goggle or glasses that are going to make a lot of that stuff, you know, much more easily accessible and integrated into our daily lives. I was looking yesterday in three years ago this month, if you were to buy a CryptoPunk, it would have been about $150 was the average price. Today, the cheapest you can buy one is about $110,000. But that was three years ago. If you bought one five years ago, it would have been like $4 because people had no perceived value, no perceived use for those at the moment. And I wonder, just going to where your head seems to be also, is at some point this is coming. You know, and 100% this is not financial advice to your own research moments, of course. But whether it's what Mintage is doing or DressX or any, you know, even I mean, Mugler just did a big drop, like anyone who's doing this stuff in fashion now, there is a little bit, I think, of why would I buy it? And that's not the Megan Caspers and Red Dows who are understand that this is going to be a future ecosystem and are doing a lot of investment in that space. I mean, you can't even use it in the game today in most cases. But th- that is interesting to think about the people building now. Are they building the CryptoPunks of the future? And not every one of them will. But out there, whether it's you or someone else, maybe creating that thing that has a future value. But the question is, are you willing to wait two, three, five years to get there? What I like about what you guys have done is you also are creating kind of a more tangible today value as well as a future value. It's almost like a digital receipt. I think that's something that we haven't seen many brands get into, but it's such a huge use case, you know, from my perspective, that makes sense because, you know, proof of ownership, you get this awesome NFT. There's also a tangible thing. And they're, you know, coupled together, but they could be sort of separated in the future. Tam, I couldn't agree more with you. I think like there's a lot of people, like I would venture to say almost everyone who doesn't understand why they should buy virtual fashion at the moment, unless it's for the purposes of within a specific game, in which case it makes sense. So I think like broadly, like there's such a massive opportunity, but we haven't seen that killer app for like why you need virtual fashion yet. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, you're right about early CryptoPunks and whether it's autoglyphs or, you know, Fidenzas, whatever. But a beautiful thing I've learned through NFTs through the collectors is subject matter experts. And there's really incredible collectors who are out there looking through specific categories. And I like a lot of people I know right now are buying early AI art, Pinder or Claire, stuff like that. And I think to your point, whether it's Red Dow or, you know, some of the other collectors, like they're looking into what are the fashion relics of today that will be very valuable as digital assets, whether they're just purely for the ownership of, you know, the grail piece or they're for the kind of futuristic use case. Cause that's the beauty of, I think, where we are in this very moment of Web3 and NFTs is you have the one kind of really important element of collecting the art for the art and the grail for the art. You obviously have the trading element and then you have the utility element. And sometimes we want to force them together and be like, well, I got that and it's art, but it's also utility. What's a utility? When this, when that, when this, right? So you have this kind of like constant tug of war happening in the fashion space in particular. Fashion really, it has not been that disrupted like music and film and art, right? So I think we're all kind of moving around here realizing that this is a big disruptive moment. How can we both create, you know, these new types of clothing and whether it's pulling from vintage items or working with futuristic fabrics and tying them to these digital assets? I will say just kind of in the mintage thing, like as much as we're really focused on vintage clothing, we're also very focused on 3D renders of the digital clothing. So what we did was we created a machine that allows us to do 360 scans of the clothing. There's only 15 of them. It really is incredible. If you look on our social media, you could see like a denim jacket that's a 1960s vintage Levi's jacket that, you know, is worth, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars at the end of the day that we, you know, intricately scan. And what we did from that scan was We then created inks that one can apply to those denim jackets to create more dynamic NFTs. And, you know, if you're wearing it in your other side or in the fluff world, the futureverse, whatever, you know, you want it to sort of be game-like and come to life and have elements that give you boosts. So we're thinking about how to 
integrate these products in our digital universes as well, but also make them, you know, hopefully collectible to the DGEN. So we're trying to kind of accomplish a lot, but it is just so much fun to do. It is so much fun to think about it. And I don't know if we would have done it if we knew how hard it would be, but a lot of these NFT driven digital companies realize like they have to become game developers and game publishers. And that is a very, very, very time consuming and expensive thing to do. But fortunately, we've brought in some great partners that have allowed us to sort of do that. One area that I wanted to sort of close on is, you know, you've worked with these amazing people. You yourself are an amazing thinker in the space. But when you think of the following that Sean Weatherspoon has or that Snoop has, I mean, there's, you know, we're talking in the millions of people at this point. And Avery and I talk about this a lot. Web3 brands don't seem to be leveraging social other than being on crypto Twitter, doing Twitter spaces, as you were mentioning. But Instagram, TikTok, you know, these are visual mediums where you create celebrity and you create fat. And we already know, for example, like TikTok sells fashion, right? Like American Eagle knows the fact that TikTok can sell out a product. I was doing a scan the other day. Micah Johnson, who I think we all love, his Aku project is incredible. I've been collecting it since almost the beginning. That project has 38,000 followers on Twitter. On Instagram, it has 12,000 followers. On TikTok, it has 132 followers. Which to me, almost when you think of Micah's work, which is so visually arresting, like you would want that to be flipped, right? Like Twitter should be the last place this goes. But it just happens to be where at least the NFT crowd has been. And we've just talked multiple times about how so many of these Web3 first brands haven't unlocked Instagram, haven't unlocked TikTok for what it can do. And I'm just wondering your thoughts, because again, I think you are such a digital first, social first person who's worked with these amazing personalities. You know, how do we kind of change that paradigm so that sort of visual social media can actually be a selling point and a conversion opportunity for audiences? Yeah, I love this question. In fact, I feel like we could probably make the whole podcast about this question. (laughs) So the answer is, it's so important to build a broader social presence, a broader marketing presence than just Twitter. Yes, the Twitter microphone is really good when you are speaking to the whale collectors and you are speaking to your drop and those people are engaged with you. If you're beyond that or that's not an interesting category for you or they're not interested in you, then, you know, it's a big miss not to be on multiple platforms. For us, I mean, our entire focus has been Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, earned media, not really paid media because we don't have the budget, but we probably do paid media. If we did, I would do billboards. You know, I think an always on multi-tiered marketing approach, it needs to come to the space. We're building real brands, long-term brands. I mean, again, like, you know, the Gary Vee discussion, like he's a a monster. He's everywhere. And he showed you when he came into the space, he was going to do it on multi-platform and create a conference. And he's delivered on everything. And he's a big kind of like example of how you could do that, right? To the counterpoint to only being on Twitter, right? For us, and again, my entire career sometimes is a sword and a shield. Like it's limited, I think, my own personal brand growth. But I've always found myself working with big, big personalities, people with big reach. And I work very well with that type of personality, whether it's a Snoop Dogg or a Sean, because I think very much about how to help their brand scale while we're thinking about our company scale. You know, I know that the importance of the reach that people like that bring to a project, right? And how you have to be authentic to their brand and how you can't make them promote something that's inauthentic. So you got to weave all these things together. So just to get back to your question, social and always on social, one thing I don't think people realize is how much work it is and how you probably need a team for it. And frankly, it is expensive. Like it is something that if you want to have a shooter and you want to be able to cut up content and you want to be able to have a podcast, you know, you need to have people who produce that or you need to people who shoot that or you need people who edit that. I ran into G Money at Beeple's event over the weekend and, you know, I was standing there and all of a sudden G's like, let's take a photo. And I take a photo and I'm kind of, and G's like, oh, that's my photographer. And we got into a conversation about this because if you look at 9DCC, like I've said to G, like your step, I like it. Like I like to see the slow motion videos of G walking through Paris. Like he's brand building. He's thinking about himself as a fashion personality, right? He needs to represent that look, feel, and that authenticity. And he even said to me, he's like, I didn't realize how expensive this is. It is a pricey endeavor. You have to think about that when you're going into this business. Like 
you know, when you build your P&L around your NFT drop and you're thinking it's about paying just solely your graphic designer, that's not going to cut it if you want to, you know, really create a consistent long-term brand approach. You need to have that social media team built out. And I will say on the Mintage team, you know, everyone, you know, from Sean to Brennan to myself, we are big visual visual super important to us. Our brand aesthetic on Instagram is just as important as anything. And, you know, we've had to like focus on that growth. And it's much harder to grow a social presence on Instagram with a Web3 brand than it is Twitter right now. But it's about finding the colorways, the color palette, the aesthetic that hits. And we spend a lot of time doing it. So, you know, kind of to button it up, like that is one of the most important things right now, I think, for a brand building in the space. I love that you just talked about like 360 integrated campaign planning. You said if you had money for paid media, you'd spend it on billboards, which is really interesting because you're running a Web3 company. But I couldn't agree more. I think people think that it should be only on endemic channels, which they might view as Twitter or Discord. And yes, and it should also be on places like TikTok or billboards or wherever you can create meaningful differentiation. Because when you're launching a Web3 program, marketing is everything. Marketing is like the biggest differentiator. And obviously, I've spent my whole career doing this because you can shift people's hearts and minds and buying behavior, but it takes time and it takes money and it takes thought and planning and also dedication. So it's awesome to hear sort of your approach to that, Nick. You also talked a little bit about VCon. Yeah, people are experts in that. So I'll say one other thing to that is like the billboard point. And why I would say that is the biggest compliment that I get about Mintage right now, and I get this a lot and I will say, but they were like, we love your brand. We love the logo and we love the colors. And like, we spent so much time developing that logo and we paid a designer who is incredible, who worked with us because he wanted to be part of the project to design that. And I love it so much. It stands on its own. Like I could see you driving down Sunset Boulevard with just a big M and a star. And I want people to go, oh, that's vintage. I don't know what they do, but I know that Nick's involved and Sean's involved and there's some vintage stuff. Like we'll get there in the storytelling. But it's the brand awareness that I think we can continue to build through the out-of-home marketing campaign or the bus stops. We're not ready for TV yet. Give me like two or three years. Got it. But you got that key visual ready to go. That's something our listeners will understand. Exactly. And Nick, you also talked a little bit about VCon. Thank you for joining us last year. I hope you'll be back this year. I am. I'm coming. Okay, good. Can you share a little bit of like why you enjoyed that conference and why it kind of like came to mind for you and other conferences that you're excited about or events and experiences you're excited about, you know, bridging between the Web3 native community, the whales, as you called them, and and a broader audience? Yeah, VCon's amazing. I'm a huge fan of VCon. I'm 100% coming back this year. And I say that like, totally, honestly, there was two things that really resonated for me. One is, you know, NFT New York and NFT Paris and Art Basel. It's like pandemonium. And you're lucky if you get to stay somewhere for 30 minutes and have a meaningful conversation. Because the team at VCon, you know, created it in a destination that I think is at a different time and off the beaten path, like you're there solely for that. I hosted a dinner at VCon, totally disconnected to it. And I had like 75 people show up and more people wanted to come. And we spent three hours in the room and I built some of the best relationships that night with some of the most emerging well-known, iconic artists, brands. It was like a real fun hang. I would have never had that in New York because they would have been like, oh, I got to go to the next party or I got to go here, I got to go there. So that was one thing that to me was just really special about it. And I'm looking forward to hopefully creating that same moment in Indianapolis this year. The other thing that I thought was really interesting, and I think this really speaks to the V family, is the people who were there, there was a mix of the DJs and there was a mix of the Web3 artists, the Web3 brands, but there was, I think, a genuine consumer there who had no exposure to Web3 and they were there to learn. And they may have been like, you know, somebody who runs a gym in Indiana or building a car parts company. And they were just there because they're learning about the messaging of branding. And, you know, they really genuinely wanted to learn some of the lessons that we could teach them. And I thought that that discourse was really important. Amazing. All right. Well, look, come see Nick at VCon this year. Come see Nick at Consensus this year. I think this is the kind of conversation we need to have because I think you're hitting it on the head. And I think, again, you know, we know and love what Gary and Avery and the team at VCon has built. But I think the idea that this is broader than the 10,000 people who all talk to each other on Twitter, and this is really a future proof for people who are in these small businesses, who are in these creative communities. To me, that's what gets me so excited. The converted are converted. 
we need them to stick around, but we can't just keep doing this for each other or else we're never going to make it. So I think that point is so valuable, which is utilizing the network effect of being in a room like what Avery sets up or like what we set up. I think that's just a giant thing. And I know, Avery, you don't set up VCon yourself. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely not. Um, but I'm going to have to invite myself to next dinner this year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, come through. I will. I mean, I think it's also doing a conference at an unusual place. When Gary first mentioned that to me, I was like, okay, that's okay. That's yeah. just a little bit different. And I'm like, oh, I guess we'll try to go with Minneapolis. And then it ended up being such a great fit in Indianapolis. I think will be a lot of the same because you're not getting like pulled into 14 different parties or, you know, getting hit up by all your friends who are in New York or Miami or LA, unless you're very well connected in Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> so I agree. And I think that, you know, I had a brief conversation with Gary and he was telling me about you know, last year and the year before, I think everything had to be Web3 centric. Everything was like, we call this NFTs. And I like that from what I'm hearing about VCon this year, it's it's really the V conference. It's really kind of embracing the world of all the things that are important to us and not making everything so targeted around why Web3 will save the world. I, I'm just so excited about assimilation. That's what kind of gets me really geeked out. I want to buy and trade NFTs but I want to integrate Web3 technology into my Web2 products and marry the two together and play video games on traditional publishing brands. So it's, you know, it's just about having fun. So Web3 will save the world is the title of the episode. <laughs> and Nick, thank you so much for spending the time with us. This was incredible. I am, like I said, such a fan of you and what you're building and you as a person and Avery, as always, I think bringing the hot questions in and amazing perspectives. So we're going to let you go. Appreciate you. And we'll see you soon, friend. Vice versa. I appreciate you guys. See you soon. Enjoy London. Thanks, Nick. Take care. Have a good one. So Avery, Nick Adler, such a good personality, bringing so much intelligence, so much perspective. Also, just imagine just the experience he's had in his whole career. Very inspiring. I loved it. What about you? It was great. I actually know a lot of our guests very well, and I didn't know Nick that well until this episode. So it was really interesting to hear his perspective, you know, both working with talent, building brands, being a lawyer. And I love the 360 like marketing perspective that he has, which I think is very different from what we see from a lot of Web3 founders. But it's also because, you know, he's done a lot of things and Web3 is just one of them. So I love Nick's perspective, really interested in where Mintage goes. And of course, love to hear what he thought about VCon because he was a big part of helping get some amazing talent there last year. And of course, him being there was amazing. Yeah, no, he's, I mean, all good anything Nick's speaking on. So I think great to have him again. I'm pretty sure we'll have him a consensus. So this is someone to keep track of. And I also think someone who has been, you know, like we haven't had anyone who focuses on licensing and IP and that kind of world yet, like who's talking about it, but I think sees that opportunity. We've seen so much stuff recently. I think of people being a little short-sighted in their approach to Web3, especially with the meta news that we talked about earlier. And so, you know, I think it's like being able to look at that longer term vision is such an important skill. And I can only imagine, you know, he was sort of the social media gateway for a lot of these sort of artist types and cultural types in 2006 and seven when social media wasn't really there, but he was able to sort of get them to be interested and involved. And I think that's just such like a unique skill of knowing and being able to be consistent. I love how he said that it felt like a hit record and it's just that gut feel that, you know, when you've been doing this for a while, you kind of get that kind of a feeling like this is going to hit and yeah, great perspective. Great to have Nick on and Sam, always amazing to see you hear your perspective. I know we're getting closer and closer to consensus. So more and more cool announcements keep coming up. So I'm fired up for it. Absolutely. All right, Avery, we will see you and everyone else next week. All right. See you, Sam. Mm-hmm.